0: Well, what up, High Fivers? What up, High Flyers? Uh, it's your boy, per the usual, High Five Tom, but um, per the usual, as you could probably read in the show notes, I'm not all alone. Uh, first and foremost, I have a guest host, uh, as heard on a very fantastic review of the movie Carlito's Way, and also Rafifi on my showcase podcast. Josh, are you this evening? I'm doing well. How are you? I am fantabulous. But we are also joined uh, by a legend, in uh, the Midwest wrestling scene, someone I've been wanting to have on this podcast for a long time, uh, but it is our good friend, Mister Big Duke, Big Dick, Duke Jason Dukes, Mister Duke. Sorry,
1: Mister Big Dick Jason Dukes to you, sir.
0: <laughs> you know I hear that a lot. So, how are you, my friend? Doing well. How are you doing? Great, great. We are great. To uh, glad to have you. And then uh, Classic High Five Tom, you know, of course, we've talked for about an hour before you even hit the record button. Uh, so if people want any of that content, you got to pay it into the Patreon. I'm just kidding. There you go. There, there's not a Patreon. It's so. on Tom's OnlyFans. <laughs>
2: right. Oh. OnlyFans. Fan that has a lot of subscribers. Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah it's, it was, oh, yeah. It's,
0: yeah, it's OnlyFan.com. so they don't even put the S on there. So, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, uh, listen, Jason is somebody I've become familiar with as i become uh ingratiated into the Midwest scene, but you told us a great story about the crusher. Um a very good anecdote. So I thought we'd start with that because it's fucking hilarious.
1: Um yeah, so what'd you tell us that story real quick, Jason? So uh one of the my many influences over the course of my career was uh Carmine to a longtime promoter in Milwaukee. Uh he promoted mid-American wrestling. And uh, I never forget him talking about the time that uh, Crusher called him up <laughs> and uh, said, basically, you know, was upset, like, "Carmine, I can't believe it. I'm gonna kill those people at Warner Brothers, those Looney Tunes. I'm gonna kill them." And Carmine basically, like, Crusher, calm down. They, you know, they had become pretty good friends. Calm, calm down, Crusher. You know, what's going on? Well, they that Bugs Bunny, they made a cartoon and he was wrestling and the wrestler's name was The Crusher and i don't know if you've ever seen the cartoon but you know it's very funny stuff like you know they they bring out the, the actual wrestler who's huge he's just going to destroy Bugs Bunny is like the ring announcer is like in this corner da Crusher and then when it was like Bugs Bunny's turn he's like and in this corner Bugs Bunny you know like so he, he's pissed about it. He's like, I'll myrtleize them. They stole my gimmick. That's gimmick infringement. And Carmine thought about it for a second. He goes, You know, Crusher, that that cartoon's from like the 50s. Are you sure you didn't steal the gimmick from the, the cartoon? He's like, Oh, god damn it. You know, he's <laughs> So I've always enjoyed that as well. Uh it it is a great anecdote.
0: Yeah, that that's a great story, and just kind of you know, definitely illustrates, you know, you've been doing this for obviously a long time. And real quick before we dig into your history, so when Carmine was running, it was MAW. Was that kind of like after A um, AWA had kind of folded and he kind of moved that into that niche about that same time period-ish? So
1: it would have been a little after. I, I want to say Carmine started running shows shortly before I started working for him. I would say maybe two years
2: okay. before
1: I want to say he started running shows I want to say either 93 or 94 and if we have any super old school MAW fans that watch this please feel free to correct me um if it was a nut and you know 92 even but I don't think so I think 93 or 94 was the first year he he ran shows uh, in the Milwaukee area and you know it didn't take him long to really make his mark and to separate himself um, from a lot of the other promoters in the area, a lot of the other promoters in the area didn't like him because he was willing to do the barbed wire matches and the hardcore matches. They did, oh, I want to say he had like a barbed wire uh match at Wilson Park, maybe it was a maybe it was a cage match first, but I, I'm not sure what it was, but like you know, forgive me, I've been dropped on my head a lot. Yeah. Um, but but the, I mean like he made waves you know back then I mean the, the guys I mean I came up through there with guys like Pierce and Punk and Cabana and you know Sick Nick Mondo and uh, Madman Pondo and Corporal Robinson um you know just a a shit ton of guys worked for Carmine uh, Silas Young Delirious. Uh, Matt Seidel, um, I mean, that's just the list really does. Chris Hero worked for Carmine and Ian Rotten at the time. They were kind of like, there was a while there in the, you know, later part of the 90s and through the early 2000s where they were almost partnered. I don't want to say they were partners, but they were they were very much uh, using a lot of the same talent, um, yeah. you know.
0: And he would run uh, Texas Victory Hall and Cudahy, right?
1: Um, I'm not sure if he ran there, but his main place that he ran that, that was really was the, uh, the Knights of Columbus in West Alice. That was the main building where, you know, he was there for a long time. A lot of great shows there, but he also did shows at Bratstop. He also did shows at, uh, Dairyland, the, the Greyhound park. Um, yeah. oh, absolutely. Absolutely, we, we did shows there. That was fun. Um, he did shows in Chicago. He did shows uh, at Grand Slam USA by the airport when that was still around. Yep. Um, he did shows at Kelly's Bleachers, at number two. As a matter of fact, he had his world title tournament there, and Harley Race refereed the match. I believe it was Punk and Cabana, and Punk won the heavyweight title, and uh, Race was the, the, the referee for that match. Um, just a lot of great history with that promotion. Um, I got to work, the very first name that I ever got to work with was Greg the Hammer Valentine on Valentine's Day at the Knights of Columbus for Carmine, wow. 1998.
0: Yeah, it's a real shame that they tore that building down. You know, I was, I was fortunate. I saw two shows there, you know, because we talked about pre-production. I didn't get back into, well, I just moved back from Idaho in 2018, so... Um, but I caught the last show there from MKE and I did catch a BCW show there. Um, but man, yeah, I didn't realize the history went that far
1: back in that place. Absolutely, man. That that building saw a whole lot of really great wrestling. I mean, really great wrestling. You had uh, you know, charming Chad and and uh you know his tag team partner, I forget his name, but you had Eric Freedom come through there. Um and Eric Freedom's just one of those guys who was just so talented like um i don't know if you're familiar with him but he runs shows up in michigan he still works for Powell, you know for jimmy blaze um but like he just he was amazing in the ring you know psychology was always great um you know just could perform any stunt necessary to get get the story over um you know just so many great people you know, came through there for Mid American Wrestling. We were also, oh man, I can't remember the name of the place, but I mean, I wrestled Tiger Mask Four. That was Tiger Mask Four's first match in America.
2: Oh, I shit. want to say that
1: was 2006 or 2007. Um, but I mean, that's how much Carmine, and, and by that time, Carmine was well invested into the NWA with uh, Ed Schumann, who was a prominent promoter at the time. Along with uh, Ian Rotten, um, lots of lots of great promoters back then. But um, yeah, I mean, it was just it was just, a, it was just a, a great time. But yeah, I was Tiger Mask's first match in America.
0: That's fucking crazy. Yeah, because I've been trying to go back. I, um, one of my first shows, I was bartending on cutting It was at Texas Victory Hall. And I wasn't sure if it was Carmine or if, if Angel Armani was running that show. I don't have a lot it, of memories.
1: It, it, it probably was Armani. You know, Armani runs a lot of great shows. Um, you got Eddie who runs Legacy Pro Wrestling, they run some pretty good shows. I mean, I think that the Milwaukee scene in general is pretty strong, you know, um, got a lot of talented guys right now that are, in, you know, that are in the area. Um, guys, there are some guys that have potential to, to really make some noise and possibly get signed, you know, That, but you know, time will tell.
2: Yeah. Cause, yeah, that
0: show was in 97. So I was trying to piece back. So obviously that was 20, you know, a long
1: time ago, but
2: yeah. you know
0: what's it? No, sorry.
1: That, that could have been somebody else too. Um, You know, like I said, there were a lot of different people that were running at that time.
0: Yeah, you uh, you mentioned a bunch of names that went through there, uh, but two that kind of piqued my interest. uh, But Nick Sickmando came up through Wisconsin, Milwaukee. I mean, obviously he's a a CCW legend, obviously. But
1: yeah, man, I mean, he worked uh, for Carmine for the Hardcore Cup and did some of the regular shows. And I mean, like I remember him. He was a cool dude. Like he was just a a regular cool dude in the locker room. Um, But he was just one of those freak athletes that could literally do just about anything in a ring. And, uh, you know, God knows why he chose the hardcore, you know, Mitch. I wonder what his career could have been had he gone a different way and like went the ring of honor route or something. Um, cause he was, to, he was that talented. He really, he really was. Yeah. Um,
0: he's got a move. he's got a really good documentary. that's out on Amazon prime. Um, it's very artsy, but I know he's been doing a lot of that kind of stuff, but yeah, he, he definitely good uh, for him. Yeah, burn bright, but burn quick. Um,
1: yeah. And that's the case with a lot of guys, you know, they just, they, do you, know, you remember – I don't know if you would were into the indies back then, but I don't know if you remember a guy named Tom Carter who wrestled as Reckless Youth. Okay. You know, Reckless Youth. Now, I'm not sure what he's doing today. For all I know, he could be, you know, somebody in, in talent relations with a major company. I'm not sure. But there's a guy who him and Quackenbush – you know who Mike Quackenbush is, right? So him and Quackenbush in the mid-90s, mid to late 90s, were traveling the country – basically having the same match everywhere but they were the talk i mean they were booked everywhere i mean if i was it was it was effed up every show that i would be on i'm thinking i'm making rounds getting away from people and doing my own thing and here's this dude these two dudes that are on like almost every major show that i'm on and i'm like i'm going who are these guys you know they're probably sitting there going who the fuck is this fat kid you know (laughs) (laughs) so um anyway i'll and i'm never forget one time uh you know i did a i did from a you know like a superplex into a, a tiger bomb right you know from the from the se- second rope and he commented on it when i got to the back and I, like this was where my head was at the time i'm like don't you dare fucking use it i'll kill you you know
2: <laughs>
1: it, you know I'm like don't you steal my shit but it's wrestling it's, it's nothing but theft you know yeah
3: every, yeah, every move has been done a million different ways, a million different times.
1: Well, that's true. So as a result, people like you decide you've seen it all. And then, you know, you tend to shit on a lot of things. So what are, what are the boys to do? You know, what are the boys to do? You know, the answer to that is to take you down a path that you think you've been on a million times before and then take you on turns that you haven't been on. Do you oh, see what I'm saying?
3: That's the, that's the good storyteller that, that does that,
1: it. That's the storyteller. So we we talked about this before in the pre-production. but So now is as good a time as any to kind of get this out there. But, you know, I believe that you basically only have two types of wrestlers. You know, you've got your deathmatch wrestlers. And as I was telling you earlier, that, and, you know, it relates since we're talking about Mondo and, you know, I, I Real quick, um, here's another quick antidote for you that I don't know if you know. Carmine, for MAW, he ran the Hardcore Cup, and I mentioned that a minute ago. He actually ran that at the Eagles Club one year because it got big. Um, You know, not at the rave, at the Eagles Club portion, all right? Mm -hmm. So the smaller part, but it was sold out. I I mean, it was packed. And uh, I didn't work on the show in matches, but I was kind of the guest – hype man you know hyping up the weapons and shit you know and interacting with the crowd very much like i do with fourth Mm wall and uh necro you know necro butcher right Mm -hmm. so necro butcher was on the show and he's gonna do the flaming leg drop and uh i'm the person that needs to come running to the ring after he does the, the flaming leg drop and put his his leg out right (laughs) <laughs> so they come to me, they ask me to do it and I'm like, yeah, no worries, I, I got you I've got the bucket, I'm all ready to go, I'm waiting for my cue there it is, I run through the curtain I get about three quarters down to the ring and I trip and I fall, and the water's like everywhere and um, I did not put his leg out and he's on fire and it's all my fault and we've, we did get his leg put out you know, but not with water so um, to this day if I talk to Dylan at all First thing he says to me is, oh, the man who tried to burn me to death. <laughs>
3: <laughs> now you're the bad guy.
1: Yeah. So anyway, I digressed a little bit there. Yeah. So I believe that there's really only two kinds of workers. If you had to put the death match workers into one of them, um, you know, it would be to me uh, the, the stunt workers. And that's that's I guess my point. You've got two types of wrestlers. You've got your stunt driven pro wrestlers sports entertainers workers and you have your story driven workers your stunt driven workers are relying on the stunts and the spots to get them over not so much on telling you know a clean story if that makes sense so um you know these are the guys that I we used to refer to as the flippy kids
2: mm-hmm.
1: um but i think that i think that phrase is kind of um is is kind of derogatory i really do i've stopped using the flippy kids uh, you know i believe that they are stunt workers they are relying on the stunts and the spots to get over then you've got your story driven workers all right and your story driven workers are not the most incredible athletes they're not going to necessarily wow you with the moves that they do but the moves that they do are going to look good they're going to utilize a lot of punches and kicks and chokes and clotheslines and, you know, storytelling, cheating, good versus evil, you know, that kind of thing. And those are the two groups that I feel like workers fall into. Um, now, the very best stunt workers know how to tell a great story. Your are Rey Mysterio's of the world. your AJ Styles of the world, just to name a couple off the top of my head. Um, even like you're... You know, anyway, and then you've got your, your you know, and they can tell good stories still, right? They, they know how to place the moves to make people be emotionally invested. And then with your story-driven workers, your very best story-driven workers tell the best stories, but they are also able to pull off any stunt that is necessary to get that story o- over. And- I tell people all the time just, you know, look at what people do in the ring and you can tell the difference. You know, mm-hmm. your story driven workers, I swear to God, they do next to nothing, next to nothing. Kicking, punching, clotheslining, choking, selling, selling. The baby faces sell on top. They, you know, anyway. So that's my take on it. And I feel like, um, the biggest mistake that workers make on the independent level is trying to be something that they're not. Um, And most often this falls into the category of guys who should be story driven workers trying to be stunt workers. You know, I'd much rather have that great athlete who can do anything in the ring, be a little bit more reserved in what he does and careful and selective about when he busts shit out. You know what I'm saying?
3: Absolutely, yeah, for sure.
1: So, I mean, and there's really only so many types of moves for there to be, you know, to be seen. You've got moves that you would expect any wrestler to do. So a lock-up, a clothesline, an elbow, right, a leg drop. You know, the very basics. You've got moves that you would expect that individual wrestler to do, right? So, like, you know, a big, huge guy. You expect a big boot in the corner of some kind, or a big boot to the face of some kind, or if they're super muscular, you're expecting them to throw the guy around with like a belly to belly or a gorilla press slam, right? Or if they're, you know, if they're a stunt driven worker, you expect them to be able to do those hurricane rana's or off the top rope. You're seeing it coming, right? right, right. So then you you have another class of moves that you wouldn't expect. Anybody, let alone the person pulling it off to be able to pull off, right? And those are like your high, you know, your high, just your greatest of high spots. This move is so awesome that people are chanting, holy shit, and they can't stop, right? And that's all well and good, you know? That's all well and good. But the moves that get over the most aren't, and the ones that last the longest aren't those Holy shit bumps. You know what I'm saying? Very few of those actually get remembered. Name five of them for me off the top of your head if you don't believe me.
2: <laughs> nah, I,
1: yeah,
0: I mean, I I, I mean, it's for, for guys like Josh and I, it's like it's it's about the moments. Like we're we're talking yeah. about Yeah, we've well, seen pretty much almost every single move, every variation of every move. But if you sell sell us that move, we're gonna get invested and we're gonna I'm gonna chuck my visor at people and Josh is gonna hit people in the head with his water bottle. I mean, you know, you know, stuff well, like that
1: if you talked about. It, I mean well like well, how but how does that happen? And this is where I think you know, guys lose their way because we were talking about this earlier. You know, I had a, a full blown conversation with Bobby Heenan before, a few years before he died. Carmine brought in lots of people, including Bobby. It had been like the third show, I think that I was on with Bobby Heenan. Wow. And uh, I felt I heard him talking um, with a few people. and the conversation was something along the lines of how your modern worker had it easier than your old school workers from back in his day because people knew the secret. And I I raised my hand like I was in school. (laughs) And he remembered me, yeah, kid, you know, you got something to say? I was like, Bobby, with all due respect, I disagree. I think that it's the exact opposite. I think that when you came through that curtain at your time, if you acted like a bad guy, the fans treated you like a bad guy. If you acted like a good guy, the fans treated you like a good guy. And then the level of what you did in the ring and the story you told in the ring dictated how emotionally invested they got. But they were emotionally invested from the time that you walked out because they still believed. Because yeah. the job then, follow me here, the, the job then, Nope.
3: You're frozen.
0: Oh, he's on mute. Huh? Muted.
2: Ooh. All right. Can you hear me? All right, you there? Yep. Hey, Yep. All there right. Sorry go. about that. No worries. <laughs>
0: All right. So. Bobby was, uh, the ghost of Bobby Heena is pissed off that you asked him a question. So <laughs> he's like,
2: yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, he he wasn't was mad. Bobby, no, Bobby
1: was not mad that I that I said something. I want to get that straight right now. Bobby was a was a wonderful person to be around, a lot of fun. He never, at least to me, he never treated me like I was any less. And and I, I think not everybody is like that. But he was, he, he did not treat me like I was any less. And what? so what I said to him was, no, the the problem is, is that it was easier for you because they just followed suit of whatever you did because they didn't know the secret. The job of the pro wrestler back in those days was protect the secret. Do not let anybody know that what is happening in the ring is predetermined or fake or fixed or whatever the word you want to use for it is right that was the goal don't let anybody know make sure that you protect it at all costs that was kfave transition between somewhere between 1998 or i'm sorry 1988 and 1993 or 94 somewhere right in there you introduce the age of the internet you Introduced the fact that it's now common knowledge that Vince McMahon has publicly come out in court and said, I don't want to pay taxes the same way that, you know, legitimate sports pay taxes because this is just entertainment. Right. So the cat's out of the bag. The cat's out of the bag. Now everybody knows the secret. Like you guys, when you walk into the shows, you're not sitting there wondering if it's real or not, are you? Right. Well, people used to go into the arenas wondering, not sure. They heard rumors, but they couldn't prove it because shit looked good. Yeah. What are you telling me here? Shut yeah. the hell up. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I tell us. So, so now the job of the pro wrestler, or the sports entertainer has changed. It's no longer to protect the secret. There's no secret to protect anymore. Yeah. So what's the job? The job now is to make you get emotionally invested and have you suspend disbelief just like you're watching a good movie. Yeah. Absolutely. Right?
2: Yeah. That's
1: the job. So I would argue that the best way to accomplish that is to get you to question if what you're watching is real or not for a minute. Subconsciously, you know in the front of your mind that it's not real. But if I do my job right as a heel, if I make sure that I'm doing things that you perceive to be unfair, and my baby face sells these things like he's dying, right? Yeah, you are going to naturally want to kill me and boo me. Oh, and you because did. I don't need to call you guys a bunch of names, you know, when it comes down to it. You know, pro wrestling is the elicitation of a prescribed response, a prescribed response from the people that are watching it. Do you understand what I mean by a prescribed response? That means that I know, it means that I know how you're going to react before I do the move, right? And what happens too often now, in my opinion, I see it every show, at least a couple times, probably more, is people sitting on their hands because, you know, nobody understands how to sell. Nobody understands how to tell a story. Nobody in the crowd is emotionally invested in, in the match. And what do you get? You get these once in a while, what we call pops. You know, you get these ups where people come out of their seats for a second, maybe more, but but just a very brief moment, and where are they again? They're sitting back in their chair. Now, if they're emotionally invested and they have suspended disbelief, now all of a sudden they're still standing. They're still, if they're sitting, they're sitting on the edge of their chair, not flat up against it, you know, with their hands full. This is, I I swear swear to God, this is the, you know, this is the position wrestling fans all the damn time. Arms crossed, wean them back. Arms crossed, like, they, they could care less if they're there or not. And I hate that. When I'm out there, that is the last thing I want to see. The last thing I want to see. And I'm amazed that more of the boys don't think that way. Does this make sense?
0: Totally. No, I mean, it makes a thousand percent sense. I mean, we we know people that are like that. Like I, I mean, I catch myself doing that sometimes, but I don't want to because just out of respect. I may not like it, but I'm not going to sit there like, this is stupid. I mean, I paid my fucking, you know, I took time out of my day. I worked hard to pay for this ticket, you know. See, that's huh? not, that's not the worst to
3: me. The one that drives me nuts is the a that's in the front row scrolling through Instagram. Where, where the wrestler in the ring actually needs to call mom and be like, dude, put your fucking phone away. We're doing something here. Then we all know. Yeah, tell- so. No, 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 I wasn't talking about one person in particular. There's a lot of fans that you see doing that shit. And it's like, you
2: do.
1: And so, what's the answer, though? The answer to me is the guy that's out there performing is give them a reason to put the phone down. Yeah. Give them a bunch of reasons to put the phone down.
3: Yeah. Knife cuts both ways. That's for sure. You
1: know, how you you ever seen uh, Howie Mandel? You know who Howie Mandel is, right? The comedian. Now he's on uh, Let or Not Let's Make a Deal. That was a different show. He's on uh, America's Got Talent. He was a really really talented comedian at one time. And uh, I remember, shit, what was I going to say? Mm-hmm. Help me out. What was the last, last thing we were talking about? You
0: were talking about cell phones and people. Um, right, yeah, 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 so this lady,
1: or no, maybe it was a dude. He sees this dude. He's in the middle of his set, and he sees this dude walking back to his seat, and he calls him out. It was probably a plant, but it was hilarious. He calls him out, and he's like, hey where were you? And the guy's like, I was in the bathroom. He's like, you went to the bathroom in the middle of my set, like just <laughs> called them out. And was like basically giving them shit about it. Right. So, you know, that's one thing you could do, but I will always argue to bring it back to the point. I will always argue that, um, if the people are sitting on their hands and they're not paying attention to what you're doing in the ring, then you're not telling a good enough story. You're not giving them a reason to be emotionally invested into what you're doing. And you probably need to rethink about how you're, you're going about things. I mean, me and Brandon Tomaselli had a match, um, you know, last Saturday, not this past one, but the one before his first match I'd had in a year and a half. And it was like riding a bike. And I think that whole time, well, first of all, I never cheated the whole match until the end when I pulled his tights, you know, for the, to reverse the O'Connor roll into the finish. So that got a lot of heat just in itself. But, I mean, I think the whole time I might have given him three clotheslines and a tit sleeper. Hmm. You know what I'm talking about, where I put him between my, you know, I've got him here. Uh, I think that was the the entirety of the offense. You know, but the very one, you know, we we probably wasted a good three, four minutes because the crowd was so hot when I, I came out, just giving me shit like that. Like they just, for whatever reason, for whatever reason, they're just giving me shit. Where, where we milked that? that for a good three, four minutes. We lock up. I shove him off and he maybe moves a couple inches. Right. And I'm, ah, yeah, <laughs> you know, I lock up with him. And he pushes me off, and Jack, I took it all the way back. No-looked it, stumbled all the way back to the ropes behind me, and took it through the ropes and out of the ring. (laughs) Got another minute and a half, two minutes out of that. Just from the – because the people, they don't see shit like that anymore. They don't see bumps like that. You know, you got to go back to, like, Bobby Heenan and Bob Orton for for guys that really gave you creative – shit like that that would make the baby face look like a million dollars. I mean, the whole place came up out of their seats and they're like, well, holy shit, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, for a half a second, they bought it. Just for a half a second. They were like, oh, yeah, it's wrestling, you yeah. know? But we didn't have to do a whole lot of things, moves-wise, because the story that we told, you know, was a of a returning wrestler trying to gain respect and trying to, to wrestle his way to it, getting outworked and outdone, you know, and out wrestled. And finally, at the end, although he had his moments, you know, he has to cheat to win. He didn't cheat the entire time, but finally, at the end, had to do it. And it got so much heat. So much heat. Fan after fan come up to me after that show. Man, it was so good to have you here and blah, blah, blah. And I, that's who you listen to. You listen to the fans. You don't listen, you know, as a wrestler, one of the worst mistakes you can make is to wrestle for the, you know, and to to perform for the, for your peers that are in the back watching. That's not who you're there being paid to entertain. You're there being paid to entertain you guys. Yeah. And that was at Powell, right? You said? Yeah, it was. It was. It was the first time that I've worked for Powell since, um, mm, I want to say somewhere around 2000-ish, maybe 2001, when uh, it was still CCW, Classic Championship Wrestling. Uh, interesting note, Jimmy Blaze had, uh, what do you call it, that public access television? He yeah. had it in this, uh, I, I want to say it was Libertyville or wherever in Illinois he had it where his shows were at the time, right? Yeah. He brings me in. And I come on there and I'm I'm slapping my tits and you know shoving people's face in it, you know, in my cleavage and shit for a sleeper hold. And uh, that ma- <laughs> that match aired on the public access channel and he fucking his promotion got banned from that public access channel because oh, of it. Man. I swear to God, I could not make this up.
2: That's if a- you ever
1: get Jimmy on, ask him about it. So and I had no clue. I had no clue. I'm thinking you got to be kidding me, you know?
0: Yeah, because I've been actually, because I'm heading down to my first power show, um, actually June 4th, and uh, I've been emailing, um, just because I'm having one of uh, um, this guy Germ is going to be doing the announcing for that show, so I'm having okay. kind of like in your position, and I've been talking. So yeah, I'll mention to that next time I email Jimmy. I'm like, well, yeah, my buddy, uh, Mr. Duke's got your band off of uh public access TV.
1: <laughs>
2: That's a great yeah.
1: You know, Jimmy is, uh, one of the guys who originally trained me. Nice. I yeah. trained in, uh, I broke in in 1995. I was fresh out of high school. I mean, it was the summer out of high school. I'm 18 years old. I'm going to be 19 that October. And, uh, um, with me and my friends, we went to a WWF TV taping, a superstars taping at uh Valparaiso university. And, uh, I saw Sonny Rogers and Harvey Whippleman walking in the, you know, you know, just in the hallway of the arena. Yeah. And the way that I thought back then I'm sizing Sonny up. I'm like, I could kick his ass. That's <laughs> what I'm thinking to myself. And, uh, So I I walked over to him and I started up a conversation and told him, you know, look, man, like I, my dream is to be able to get in the ring. I never thought that I was big enough. I probably insulted the shit out of him. Now that I'm thinking about it, yeah, I never thought I was big enough to be a wrestler until I met you. (laughs) Like he had to be like, "Fuck you, kid! I'm going to rape you for as much money as I can get." Um, So anyway, he we started up a conversation. Turned out that, uh, you know, I was living in Illinois and, uh, he lived two towns over from me. I lived in, uh, Bartlett. He lived in Roselle. He had a school at the corner of Lawrence and Broadway, um, down, you know, in the city.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, uh, you know, which was roughly about an hour or more ride for me, depending if you had to drive through rush hour, it could be up to an hour and a half drive. But anyway, uh we decided we're going to meet up at the school and check it out on uh, I think it was a Monday or a Tuesday night. My friend, Matt went with me along with his girlfriend, uh, Heather. And as soon as I could reach out and touch the ring, that was it. I knew I was going to do it. And I'd already been accepted to college. That was the other thing I had been accepted to college. Um, and I went into my dad's office and I told him, look, I found this wrestling school and I'm going to follow my dream. And this had to be super hard for my dad because I mean, they'd been trying to convince me to get away from wrestling since I was a little kid. Oh. Like I was a huge fan. My dad, I remember him coming home. What are you doing? I'm like watching wrestling guys. God damn it. Don't you know that every hour that you watch of that lowers your IQ by a half a point.
2: <laughs> and I,
1: I, I was a smart kid. I was, I was like borderline genius. And I did the quick math and I'm like, I'd be drooling on myself by now. And I just went back to watching. I think it was like clash of the champions or something that I was watching on that Saturday, you know? Um, And I'll, I'll never forget. I I walked into his office to tell him that I had found the school and I was going to follow my dreams and pursue pro wrestling as a career <clears throat> and he looked at me and he says, well, you might as well go to clown college. And I'm not paying for any of that. And he didn't talk to me for like two years. Like if he, if he happened to answer the phone is, he, it would be like, I'd be like, Hey dad, what's up? You like, oh, let me get your mother. <laughs> that, is, that would be his response. You know,
2: your pops. Like,
1: it was hard. that was really hard for me because I wanted I needed support, to be honest with you. Sometimes I wonder if I could have accomplished more um, had I had the support of, like, my family and stuff right from the word get-go. You know, a lot of kids, they walked into those wrestling schools um, and, like, they had mommy and daddy to pay for everything. My mom and dad weren't paying for shit because they didn't really have shit to begin with, you know. But, you know, I think the wrestling school then was, like, fifteen hundred dollars two grand whatever it was yeah. and it probably would have really helped me if had they um you know paid for it but they didn't I had to do that all myself and that's a whole another took like a year or two for me to pay it all off because I was a loser
0: <laughs> well I mean in the beginning, then was that kind of like were you kind of wrestling with a chip on your shoulder you're like I'll show you dad or was it just like I'm just gonna do this regardless
1: yeah it was kind of like I'm just gonna do this regardless um the chip on my shoulder was for anybody who thought that I couldn't and it became very apparent at you know like I at the school like right away I could tell I was taking to everything you know like me and my backstory here me and my friends we -hmm. were the kind of wrestling nerds where we had our own wrestling federation right Mm -hmm. but We were such fucking fans and nerds that we didn't bother to come up with our own characters and shit. No, we would have a draft and we would pick the guys from WWF, NWA, Mid-Atlantic, wherever. We would pick the guys and we would wrestle as them. So there is footage out there. We would record it and everything and have pay-per-views, all of it. There is footage Of Jason Dukes pretending to be the British Bulldog and Carrie Von (laughs) Eric and Brad Armstrong. Uh, We need to find these tapes. (laughs) No, you do not. You do not. I I have sworn to the person who owns these that if they ever make it to the internet, and I am old enough to still go and kill this person, that this person will still be dead because that. Game over. Although I will say that the last shoot interview I did, um, that I did in haste, um, as a grumpy, fat, bitter, from the wrong perspective, Jason Dukes, nothing I said in that shoot interview that's out there, um, was untrue. It was just coming from a very warped and fucked up perspective, you know. So anybody that has seen that and took any offense from anything Things that i said i'm sorry there were definitely things that uh were said in it that probably should have been left unsaid um but you guys get a much, much jollier fat man you <laughs> you get
2: Santa Claus over here, here go. well over here.
0: well we do enjoy it and like josh said listen i mean you always make you know like especially like fourth wall when you're on the mic and everything it's, it's always a very enjoyable experience and and i'm not just blowing smoke up your ass i mean that is very true we've talked about it
1: so and the whole
0: signing. Of you the- know what's
1: funny is dysfunction. Kurt, he says that I'm the worst ring announcer ever. He hates. He hates my ring announcing.
3: Nuts. He's nuts. It's golden. I love that. Like you kind of gave it like a '80s feel, where after the match you're getting a couple of comments from the competitor, and then you're tossing out the cards that you had autographed by all the performers to the kids. Mm-hmm. Like that's the type of shit that that's that that's cool. You know that that. Keeps that fan invested because it's like, oh, this is different. It's not just somebody come out there saying, and next out to the ring, and then you disappear. Like,
1: yeah. So I always said to myself that if I was ever going to do any kind of MC work or or ring announcing for wrestling, that I was going to treat it more like um, I'm an MC than anything else. Like, I'm the host, you know? Yeah. And I think that. The fan interaction, like I'm out there getting almost as much FaceTime or more FaceTime than anybody else. Yeah. Yet my job is not to steal the show, um, just to, to add to it a little bit and and to to expand upon what's already there, right? Mm-hmm. So what I thought to myself is the one aspect of this that has never really been explored is fan interaction from your ring announcer right So going up to the fans, hey, what did you think about that last match? Awesome. you know, hey, I heard you say, I heard you say that uh, the referee is this counts the slow, what'd you call him half count Joe, <laughs> you know, and now we've got a whole new nickname for a referee, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I just guess that my approach to that is just have fun. Um, don't take myself too seriously, but also at the same time trying, to, to give the wrestlers and the wrestling itself the seriousness that it does deserve at times. You know, there are, there are different kinds of matches. There are matches that are just for fun. And then there are matches that are to tell a serious story. So I think it's important for me in that position to know, you know, what's what, and to be, you know, to make sure that I'm, you know, staying appropriate, you know, with my interaction based on what's happening around me. And as far as the, uh, You know, the post-match interviews with the guys. This has been the most fucking fun experiment ever. Nobody can do it. Nobody can do it anymore. It's a lost fucking art form. That's what I have found out.
3: To me, I absolutely love that because it gave me nostalgic vibes of like, you remember when a wrestler's promo was like a 30 second clip before or after a match? Not this whole, we got the first 20 minutes of the show be one person on a fucking microphone. That was a yeah. second thing. And like, you kind of like like brought back that mean Gene Oakland vibe, you know, like. You
1: like- know who I'm emulating with those? I'm, I'm emulating Larry Nelson from AWA. You know, he was always great. Like, he didn't do too much, in my opinion. Like, like Colonel De Beers, you know, Colonel De Beers, I can't believe what I just saw. And then he'd let him talk. Yeah, yeah. that's all. That was enough, you know, like, he he didn't pretend to not have a reaction to what he saw. And I think that's what I'm trying to convey in those situations. Like, hey, I'm an observer, just like everybody else. The only difference, like I'm I'm putting myself in a place where it's like the only difference between me and the fan is I have a microphone in my hand right after the match. So th- to me, it's almost like lending the fan a voice, right? And that's the approach I'm taking that I think is a little bit different than most guys that are doing it today. And it seems to be working for me. But like I said, dysfunction hates it. Yeah, I, that that's yeah. He hates my jokes. That's what it is well I mean you're a corny dad I mean what the fuck I am a corny dad but I thought look I think so like I try to find some truth in what I say so when I say tonight you're going to see you know I've, I've realized there are two kinds of wrestlers there are the kinds that you know steal their moves from you know Friday and Tuesday night wrestling and then there are the kinds that steal their moves from late night Saturday cartoons you know, and tonight you're going to see both because it's fucking true. It's true. Half the shit you see out there these days is is literally stuff you see off of Dragon Ball Z and stuff. It's crazy.
0: Yeah. Well, and let's say last fourth wall, so you even interviewed Jim. I mean, Jim's a national treasure, so anytime Jim can get some exposure, I was I was very happy about that. So
1: I love putting a mic in front of people in general, but especially people like fans who have no clue what to do with it. And then you just get the coolest reactions out of people, right? They're just, it's,
2: that's what I like
1: about it. And this is what I was starting to say. You know, the wrestlers themselves, I don't think they like those post-match interviews. I don't think they like them. Now, when I was coming up, I would have given anything for an extra 30 seconds or so to, to convey my thoughts to the people, you yeah. know, that's that's prime time to help you get over even more, you know? Wow. And I have been utterly shocked at how many people I say, oh my God, like, this just happened, what's your reaction? And they're like, do, the, I do, I do. They, get, they don't know what to say. They can't come, they cannot improv coherent off the top of their head.
2: Process, no. <laughs> What'd you say?
3: It's a coherent thought is not part
1: of their process. That's for sure. No, that's not it. It's just stepping outside of their comfort zone. That's mm-hmm. the problem. These days, you know, when I was working all the time, we didn't, we didn't uh, talk about every single punch and kick and clothesline and choke And every single little thing we were going to do As a matter of fact, we would tell each other sometimes like, Hey, if the, if the time's right and it calls for it and I say this, that means we're going to go into this spot and we would have the spot called unsure if we were even going to use it. Right. Mm -hmm. And we would have lots of stuff like that. But the idea behind it was to go out there with an open mind, have a plan you know but the plan was more of an outline there was always room for improv- improvisation
2: right.
1: within the moves and within you know the 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 speak of it all right so nowadays that's a lost art form you know if these kids, i swear to you on my on my life they will go out there in the back and they will talk about everything they will get out there and then if you guys are shitting on it and just sitting there they cannot change gears they cannot figure out what's happening they cannot do something different they can't there's no there's no room for it in today's sports entertainment unfortunately and that's just a shame because you never know how a collective crowd is going to feel on a given night you may do something that has worked in 12 cities and on the thirteenth city you go to, they shit all over it. It happens. And now, I think especially you know on the indies, like the guys, and I say that as as a proud member of the indies, guys just don't have the capacity to to change it up. They don't have it in them. Very rare. It's a very rare trait. Do you have it's any fun
0: story, Do you have any fun stories of you flipping the the script on like you know? like you're you're supposed to be the heel but you're you know you're getting a baby face reaction or vice versa well I
1: mean, that's a, a that's a lazy thing to do to be honest with you you know i think the laziest thing you can do as a heel if you're getting a baby face reaction or if you're a baby face getting a heel reaction the laziest thing you can do is give in and say okay cuz overall this is a business and if i'm employed as a heel you know And the fans are cheering me. That's a fucking problem. That's not a good thing. That's a bad thing. Right. Terry Taylor once told me, Jason, baby faces get cheered, heels get booed. You have to come to terms with that. You know, and what he was talking about was, oh, it must have been like 2007 or 2008, right in there. I'm the, you know, I'm the NWA Midwest X Division champion. Um, you know, i I, I was that but that belt was put over to me by Alex Shelley. I successfully defended it against Jay Lethal twice. I successfully defended it against Billy Kidman and uh, uh, you know, just countless others, countless others. Um you know, they they really pushed me. And Terry Taylor was Schumann's main booker at that time. And he was part of the reason why I, I told you earlier I was talking to him a, a lot. But anyway, um so we were doing like a, a Royal Rumble type match. Well, my number hits and I hit the curtain, and the the fans at this time were starting to really get behind me um as like that cool heel to get behind, right? Mm-hmm. So I come out and I knew that the dude was going to be on the on the ground, and I was going to come out and give him a an elbow drop off the top rope. You know, part of the plan for whatever reason. I come out, I start climbing the ropes, and the people start going ape shit. They they come up, and instead of flipping them off and telling them to fuck off, I I'm like, whoa, yeah. I let ego get in the way of business because I enjoyed it. I enjoy I, I enjoyed the recognition, right? I get back to the back and Terry's pissed at me. You're supposed to be one of our top heels and they're cheering you. Mm. Are you going to let them do that? Well, Terry, what's the problem? Every heel wants to deep down in his heart wants to be cheered. You know, it's part of why they're a heel. They don't understand why people hate them. And he said, that's the laziest fucking way to look at it. And he, he just told me, he said, baby faces get cheered. Heels get booed. And if we want the heel to get cheered, we turn them baby face on our terms, not the fans. Huh. You got to remember that the pro wrestling is supposed to be we do a move. And we know how you're going to respond to that move before you do. And if we don't, then we need to, to rethink what we're doing. I should know how you're going to respond to every move I do before I perform it. Period. Period. So I've never had that where um, I had to flip the script and change from baby face to heel, and I never would do that I, I for reasons I just outlined. Um, the funniest thing that ever happened was I was wrestling in Louisiana, um, Monroe, Louisiana, and Buddy Landell was on the show. Right. And uh, fucking a, if he didn't show up in a Corvette, I swear to God, he show, showed up in like a classic Corvette, at like major boy in it up. Um, and when I, you know, I do that thing where I jump up and I bounce off the top rope and I, you know, come into the ring. Right. Mm-hmm. I bounced off the top rope and the fucking rope broke. Right. Mm-hmm. So I had to figure out what the fuck to do while they're fixing the fucking ring before my opponent is coming out. And I like everybody started laughing. Right. As soon as it happened. And I just played off that. I can't believe you people are laughing at me. You're a disgrace. I know what happened. Somebody did this on purpose. That's what happened. Somebody did this on purpose, and I can't believe they would go out of their way to embarrass me like this. I almost started crying in front of a capacity crowd, you know? And uh, I'll never fucking forget. And, like, during this match, once we got it going, like, people started throwing bras at me and shit. You know, it was – that happened a lot. You know, like, somebody – if anybody would yell at me, you need a bra, I'd be like – Get me one and I'll wear it, you know. And then I would tie it to my head, you know, like weird, weird science style, you know, like where it is like wrestling headgear. That was always funny to me. But anyway, I'll never forget, too. And so that was one time where something went wrong. I had to improv and make it work for a few minutes and it was fine. And Buddy was super impressed. I get back to the back and he was like, Damn, kid, you can sure run your mouth. He's like, Let me ask you something, though how come when somebody throws you a fucking weapon, you don't use it? And I'm like, what the hell do you mean? And he goes, they threw you a bra, and instead of choking your opponent with it, you put it on your fucking head-like headgear. (laughs) And it was like a fucking light bulb went off in my head. I'm still fairly young at the time. But, like, he was right, you know? How much heat would that have got if I wore it on my head for a second and then took it off when the referee wasn't looking and, you know, choking the guy with it? You know, and then put it back on, you know, when the ref turns back around. I could have did so much more, you know. But Buddy was the first one to point that out to me. It was like, they gave you a fucking weapon. Use it, man, you know. Again, I digress. And then there was – this this doesn't really count as, like, having to, you know, alter what you were doing. I've gone out there and called entire matches in the ring before plenty of times. That's how I was trained. Um. But there was this time in Min- Marion, Indiana. I was working this kid named I was working with this kid named Eden, and he had this cool vampire gimmick. And this, the the promoter he runs the Heroes and Legends shows now. Okay. Um, Jason Jason Maples is his name, and he was running in like a converted movie theater. Really cool setup. And this kid would like walk on the back of the movie theater seats all the way to the ring. You know, very cool fucking entrance. They would turn the lights off, put the spotlight on them. Very cool shit. Yeah. Green as grass. Like very fucking new. Like maybe had been I'd been working like five years by that time. And he'd been working like maybe a year and a half, you know, which is like nothing. That's that's no time at all especially when you're only working in your own backyard and not getting out and doing anything. Like anybody who's anybody asks you how long you've been working and you tell them, let's just say you tell them a year, they'll ask you a year, a hundred matches in that year. Oh, Oh no. Cause a hundred matches is your first standard as a professional way, for a year. Um, anywho, I digress again. So, uh, this kid Eden, I get to the show, I go to talk to him. And I'm the heel and I've got graphics, the mean green chicken in my corner, but the promoter wants Eden over and we have a finish. And so I go to talk to him and ask him, you know, I have was not familiar with his work too much. Um, Ask him what he did well, you know, try to get a sense of what he wanted to do. Um, The heels back then, especially always called the match. And if you had the experience factor, then that was the cincher. You were definitely calling the match. And even if you didn't call the match in the back as the heel, it was kind of your job to lead everything out there. Mm -hmm. So I start asking him, like, what can you do? What do you like to do? What do you like to do offensively? He's not giving me anything to work with. He's, you know, basically telling me I can do whatever. It doesn't matter. Whatever, whatever. And I'm like, dude, I'm like, you're not understanding. Like my job is to make you look as good as possible and to make me look as good as possible. And in order to do that, I need to know what you do. Well, what do you like to do for offense in the fucking ring? I know what I like to do. I want to know what you like to do. Mm-hmm. I can do anything. And PS for any young wrestlers that may watch this, if you're working with, and I was no name, but if you're working with a name or anybody who's been around long enough to fucking know and They ask you, what do you like to do? Or what can you do? And you tell them anything you are opening yourself up to being tested. I promise. Mm -hmm. So we go back and forth like this a few times. And uh, let me also back up a little bit and say, this kid was not well liked in his locker room. This is his home promotion and people fucking hate his guts. All right. I'm not one of those people because I don't really know him, you know, but it was clear that nobody really liked it. And that was made even more clear later after what happened happened. (laughs) So I finally go to him and I'm tired of, you know, it's like, we're either going to talk about this or not. We have the finish. You know what that is. Let's just go out there and work on the fly. I can do that. I was trained that way. Were you? Oh, I can do whatever. Okay. Well, we get out there and the bell's about, he does his entrance. I'm out first because I'm the heel. He does his entrance. He gets to the ring. Really cool fucking entrance. And uh, the ref comes over to check me after he had talked to him. And the ref says to me, Eden says, watch the spear. I'm like, no. And the ref started to walk away. I reached out and I grabbed him and pulled him back to me. I said, you go back there. And you tell him to lock up because that's what you do if you're going to go out and you're going to work on the fly and you haven't talked about a damn thing. You lock up. I said, you tell him to lock up and to shut his mouth and everything will be fine. And I let the referee go. And as soon as he turned around and had cleared me, here comes this fucking dipshit running at me. No idea who I am, if I know how to fight, I mean, it's like pro wrestling is dangerous like that because you don't truly know anybody. You only know who you know, right? So anybody could have a Brazilian jiu-jitsu background or a judo background, you know, any type of fighting background. And, you know, the most you may have done was played baseball or football, right? That happens a lot. Don't mistake being an athlete for being a fucking tough guy. I tell this to people all the time. Just because you're athletic doesn't mean you're tough. I'll fucking headbutt you in the nose and break it, and then we'll find out how tough you are, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I know real tough guys. I'm not even one of them. Yeah. But I digress. Anyway, so this kid comes running at me to spear me, and I shoot hip toss him. I literally just kind of sidestepped him, you know, one hand over the other, basically bent him over my knee and, you know, thrusted my. It's a, it's a judo toss. It's what it is. Um. So I judo toss him to the ground, and I start punching him in the fucking forehead as hard as I can. <laughs> you dumb motherfucker! What the fuck's wrong with you? Now get up. Reverse. Give me a drop kick. I'm pissed at him, and I'm calling a spot for him because I'm the heel. And the beginning of the match, he needs to shine. Had he locked up with me, he would have began to realize. All right. We're going to do some chain and he's going to out wrestle me. And like, I would have made him look really good, but instead he decided to get cute. So I pick him up. I go to throw him in he reverses me. And when he does, he backs up into the ropes to throw a drop kick at me dumbest shit I've ever seen in my life, so I swatted the dropkick away, and I'm now on top of him again, punching him in the fucking forehead. You've gotta be the stupidest motherfucker. Who the fuck trained you? I'm gonna kick his ass, too. Now, get up and give me a backdrop after you reverse me. <laughs> you know, like Now, I'm still calling a fucking spot for him. He <laughs> fucked that up, too. So now I'm really mad. We go into the fucking... You know, I think I gave him some shine. I was able to get him to get some shine in. And then... um. We go into the fucking heat. I don't remember how I cut him off, but it was probably pretty fucking nasty if I remember right. I think I took his head off with a clothesline. like you can work a clothesline or you can clothesline somebody right in the fucking throat. And I don't I, I didn't try to hurt people ever, but this kid had it fucking coming because anyway, so I, I I took his head off with a clothesline. And I went to pick him up for a suplex during the heat and he sandbags me, like he drops his hips, like he's he's not gonna go. So I kicked, like I've got his arm, you know, we've got each other hooked. So I've got his head hooked already. I literally kicked his leg out from under him and fucking shoot DDT'd him <laughs> right in <out of> the ground. <laughs> <laughs> and I will say in all my years, this is the only time I've ever had to do more than throw one shoot punch in a match to get somebody's attention ever. (laughs) And that's only happened a few times. Like we're supposed to take care of each other and not kill each other. This kid, man, he took the cake. So still wound up putting him over because the finish was, you know, me accidentally getting hit with a chair by my mean green chicken, which was uh, a kid in a, a, a big green chicken suit. That was graphics, the mean green chicken. So after the match, we get back to the, ba- I get to the back to the back and he, you know, he takes him longer to get back because he's going to revel in his wonderful victory. <laughs> and uh, he's cry. He's literally crying. He's crying. I'm going to kick your ass. What the fuck is wrong with you? I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kick your ass. And so. I start laughing. I'm literally laughing at him. Go! Are you serious? You serious? That was a fake fight. You didn't have a chance. In a real fight, you're gonna you're gonna kick my
2: ass. It's not happening. Mm-hmm.
1: And so I told you earlier that, you know, it became more apparent later after what happened that he was not liked at all at his home promotion. I am telling you, one by one, one by one except for maybe two out of the 14 guys that were from that home promotion that night.
2: Yeah. I
1: think two of them didn't say a word to me. every single one of them came up to me and thanked me.
2: <laughs> that
1: motherfucker had it coming. God, we're all sick of his shit. he's a prima donna. <laughs> and then I didn't feel so bad because I felt bad. I did. I was like, man, you know a little you know like he was skinnier than me and I I took no pleasure. I think at the time I was just angry, but I like afterwards I had I took no pleasure in being the bully in the situation. But God, he had it fucking coming. What'd you say?
2: You
0: had to beat up his trainer then?
1: Oh man, no, I'm sure I never ran into his trainer. If I did, he didn't claim him.
2: <laughs>
0: I, I'm just
3: waiting for like the icing on the cake for him to be like, hey, you can see him now every Monday. <laughs> <on.">
2: <laughs> like,
1: Jesus
3: also the kid made it to the big time. Yeah.
1: Oh <laughs> yeah. man. That'd be funny.
3: Turned
1: oh. into CM Punk or something.
0: Right. Oh. <laughs>
2: um,
0: but earlier you, you obviously we talked about uh Terry Taylor before pre-production and everything, but um I've always said Terry Taylor is one of the most underrated entertainers, wrestlers, whatever you want to call him. Um obviously he got fucked with the Red Rooster gimmick, but a fucking genius in the ring, but uh, tell us some more about some advice from Terry Taylor.
1: So Terry was, um, you know, he was very matter of fact, but very kind. Um, you know, I would talk to him at least once a week. And he, you know, I, th- I feel like he was truly trying to get the best out of me mm. and, and to get me a job. You know, I think he wanted me to have a job. And I remember when we were first, talking and uh because he had told me again he had told me when we go to two hours I want you to call me as soon as you see that we're going to two hours because it's coming in the next month the first commercial hits and you see it I want you to call me so I did and uh he basically interviewed me over the phone and said Jason you know you know I know you and I know what you can do but tell me why you 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 deserve a contract what is it that that why, why should i help you is basically what he said to me i said well geez terry you know i i could really use a shot at this i really just needed i I could for sure use a break and i'll never forget him just stopping and he's just like did you just say you could use you just need a break and i'm just like um yeah <laughs> <laughs> and he's just like "No." No, Jason, to say that you need a break would insinuate that you need some sort of good fortune or luck to hit you. He said luck has nothing to do with it. He said what you need is an opportunity to show the world exactly what you're capable of. That's what you need. And there's a difference. You understand? And I no sooner did it come out of his mouth that I did I say to him, Terry, I just need an opportunity to show the world what I can do? <laughs> and, and he laughed and he said, that almost sounded like somebody fed you the line. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: and, uh, you know, he was just he made you think about things. You know, that was the main thing about Terry. So if he was agenting my match, you know, for Schumann's promotion, you um, You know, if we were going to do something, he would always want to. And if he thought like, hmm, I'm not sure that makes sense. You know, what's your why behind this? You know, like he would always try to get to the bottom of, is this next thing logical? Mm -hmm. Right. Does this make sense? Because ultimately. That is how you tell a good story. Everything makes sense. Everything that follows the next is the next logical step in the story. Right or at least in your brain, you can make it the next logical step. You can say, yes, I can see why they would go there. Right. So, you know, and he was all, Terry was also very protective of people's finishers. You know, he he was not a believer in, uh, you know, letting people kick out of your finishers. You know, if you were going to do it, it had to be in an ultra high profile situation, that kind of thing. um, So, yeah, I mean, I got lots of great stuff from him, Um, but in general, just a a better general sensibility about the business that I was trying to really get into.
0: Yeah, because I remember listening to um, one of the first wrestling podcasts was Stone Cold, and uh, he was talking, I can't remember who he was in the car with, but he was still in WCW, and someone asked him, he's like, well, what's so stunning about stunning Steve Austin? He's like, well, I don't have an answer. And after that, it really kind of clicked with him on like, you know, what makes me, me. So I always thought, you know, that's kind of some kind of same advice that Terry's giving you with, you know, the next logical step. So.
1: Absolutely. No, he was a, he was a good mentor. Um, You know, it's just, it's unfortunate that I couldn't get out of my own way, you know, because I feel like, I, I was, I had some disadvantages, you know, as far as trying to actually make it and get signed. I was short and I was not your typical, your atypical body, especially for that time, you know, and it's the one piece of advice that every person in a position of power at a major company will tell you that nobody really wants to listen to because it's hard work and that's get your body into the best shape possible. So go back to 1999. Um, I went with a car load to Cincinnati for Les Thatcher's Brian Pillman Memorial show. Okay. Um, this is the one where Regal and Benoit headbutted each other into color. Okay. Oh, yeah. And uh everybody like everybody who's anybody that is available, even signed talent, is on this show. Like Guerrero is there. Uh you know, Diesel is or or Nash is there. Uh, Diamond Dallas Page is there. Um, you know, like I said, Regal Benoit, um, Missy Hyatt was there. Um, just name after name after name after name, and then a bunch of schmucks, you know, and then uh, guys from Les's school from eight the HWA school from back then, and uh, Doctor Tom Pritchard was doing a seminar there and I was, you know, taking part and, uh, I was rolling around with him and we rolled, you know, I mean, he was just in that ring for hours, just wrestling, anybody that would get in it with him. I mean, it was awesome. Man just was a machine and, uh, got in the ring with him and he was impressed. You know, he, wow. You know, what's your name, Jason? Great. You know, like you, you move really well. And, uh, you know, but you need to get your body into as good a shape as possible. And I was one of those guys who, you know, I'm molded. Here I am. I'm like molded after guys like Dusty Rhodes and Playboy Buddy Rose, like the fat guy wrestlers. And the advice I'm being given is get your body in as good a shape as possible, right? It seemed counterintuitive to me because of the character I was playing. Mm -hmm. So my response to him was probably stupid as fuck. And I said to him, yeah, but like, I'm a fat guy. My gimmick is, is that I'm a fat guy who can really fucking work. And he goes, well, you really can work, but we already have a couple of those fat guys who can really work. And they're way more famous than you. Mm
2: -hmm. And there's
1: only so many of those spots to go around. So in order to give yourself the best chance to get signed, you need to be in the best shape you can possibly get your body. And the reality, I remember him, this is like 99. So I'm young, you know, I'm barely, you know, four years into things. Yeah. And it's like, he he might as well have just dropped a safe on my head from a tall building. Right. Cause I'm like, holy shit. And so I did, you know, there was a, a, a good year. In 2006, when I was in really good shape, 208 pounds in good wrestling shape, fairly cut, went from being everybody's favorite fat ass to being, you know, to getting, you know, you know, hearing girls in the crowd say, wow, he's really hot. And, you know, getting people, the the Kurt, because at the time I'm wearing the black singlet and shit, I'm getting Kurt Henning, you know, comparisons, you know, as far as the way I looked. Yeah. He was now Kurt was in way better shape than I would have ever been. But I was like, finally, you know, things are going right. and I'm working for Danny Daniels AW at the time, and I'm doing stuff for Ian and for Ed and Carmine and getting down south and down southeast and really making some rounds and feeling like i'm I'm getting somewhere now that I'm in shape. And then Jim Lehman, who owned AW with Danny Daniels at the time, comes to me and he wasn't the only one. And he said, Dukes, I love you. You know, you're like, like everybody respects you. You're one of the better performers, you know, out there. He said, but you were much more entertaining when you were fatter. And he, he, t- he was like, did you ever see uh, varsity blues? He was like that fat guy that's in, you know, was in varsity blues. Where do you see him now? He's not in anything. You know, cause he lost all the weight. And I'm like, oh man. Like, he's like, you should put 30 pounds of fat back on. You we were much more entertaining. Mm-hmm. So, and I did. I was like, you don't care about me at all. I'll you have do, to do it.
3: Like kick straight to the nuts there. I was like, oh.
1: It'll fuck with your brain. Yeah. You know, it's like, well, what am I supposed to do? Right. Damned if I do, damned if I don't. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, you know, I think I just, I finally just embraced the the buddy rose style gimmick and just said fuck it this is what i'm going with and i'll be you know i always did my time on the treadmill and put my time in in the weight room so you know uh that was never an issue you know like cardio and all that was never an issue for me in the ring you know i remember i was working with silas young one time and it had been a while since we had worked together we came back to the back afterwards he's like i forgot that you don't get blown up He's like, I always expect the fat guys to get blown up, but you never get blown up. But, uh, anywho. So, so, uh, ah, shit. Where was I? Danny, or Danny and Jim told you that you're. Oh yeah. Yeah. So like I gained the weight back and I just embraced the, the buddy Rose gimmick and. Went on to be a sexy slim goody for Insane Clown Posse's JCW promotion. Worked on and off for them for a few years. Um, and that was that was something else. That was something else.
0: <laughs> so anyone that listens to this podcast knows that, um, you know, AAW besides ICW Milwaukee is one of my personal favorites. Um, you know, I've a good friend, Trent, that comes on here a lot talk about AEW, but how long were you with Danny Daniels and Jim Lyman at AEW?
1: I was there for a good year, maybe close to two. Um, I was there when, uh, you know, everybody was coming through. Jerry Lynn, Silas, uh, Tyler Black, uh, you know, Truth Martini, um, you, know, you had all kinds of guys. It's just it, it was no different than it is now, except for the you know the indie darlings of then were all coming through then, just like all the indie darlings of now are coming through now. Um, Danny Daniels had a plan. Um, he bought that promotion from the previous owner, a guy named John Burke, and I think Tony Scarpone also had a hand in that. Not sure, but he he ran pro wrestling blitz for a long time as well as Scarpone did. Um,
0: that's a promoter name, by the way. Tony Scarpone. Huh? That's a that's a very promoter name, Tony Scarpone. I'm like
1: Yeah, he's a Chicago dude. Like, he wrestled ah. for a long time too. So what happened was is when Danny bought the promotion, there were all kinds of, you know, there were guys that worked there that he immediately let go. I did not work there. He came and talked to me at a show and was like, hey, I just bought this trying to do something different. Will you come work for me? Yeah, dude, would love to. And uh, you know, so I was there from the beginning. I was on AAW's very first show with Danny Daniels as the owner with Jim, Jim Lehman. Um, and I was there for a good while. Probably the best feud that I had there was with Silas. Um, we had a few matches there, and the, that culminated in a hardcore match. Um, and it was funny because Danny he would do things like, "Hey, you get you know if uh, if you're working together and you get the match, you get voted match of the night by myself and the other creative people. Um, you know, we'll give you an extra fifty bucks as an incentive, right?" Well, me and Silas go out and we have our first match together and we tore the house down. I mean, so we we got the 50 bucks. We were not even close to the main event, but it was a main event match. And uh, the next time out, he has us together again to further the story. And he said he actually says to us, so I know you guys could go out there and have match of the night if you wanted to, but I don't want you to do that. I only need you to go six minutes and here's what I want for the finish and all that. And so I didn't skip a beat. I looked him right in the eyes and I said, you know, if you're telling us that, you know, we could go out there and have the match in the night and you're asking us not to, I say you, I say you kind of owe us the money. (laughs) He's like, what the hell are you talking? Like, he got worked up. I was just fucking with him. I mean, if he was going to give it to me, if he was going to give it to us, fine. But, you know, but I was just kind of fucking with him. But I had a point. Yeah, and yeah. uh he's like get the fuck out of that see that's the kind of shit that always got me in trouble like little things like that and uh so yeah. anyway me and caleb had our blow-off match and coming out of that match i would say that we were equal you know he had as much baby face fire as i had heel heat and we were on an equal level in the eyes of the fans
2: yeah
1: I mean, quick story. I came through the curtain for for a match shortly after that, like the very next time out, and I was like early on the card they had somebody, and i it, it was Danny authorized this. they had put my face, you know meat wad from Aquatine Hunger Force they had a bunch of like little three inch diameter meat wads on a stick with my face on them. <laughs> Sold them for like two or three bucks a pop, and I tell I shit you not, that all two hundred people in attendance had one. I'm not fucking kidding, like they're all holding these up at me. I'm like, what the fuck, you know? I went to the back. Hey, where did those fucking meat wads on a stick with my face come from? And I think Danny was like, oh, I like we made them. Isn't that great? We sold them for two
2: bucks a pop. I'm like, where's my cut? Like. Um, and those kinds of things got me in trouble. Image and likeness, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So
1: finally, that ended because um, and I, you know, I wish that I wouldn't. You know, Danny, his version of it is Dukes. I loved you. Um, I I was not. I just didn't know what to do with you at the time. If you'd have just been patient, um, we would have figured it out. And I I do believe him. Again, at that time, I'm hungry. I'm I'm not very patient as a person in general, let alone with the wrestling business. I wanted everything to just happen. And uh, so, coming out of that feud with Caleb, we had equal status, but Danny pushed him into that secondary title belt, and I was left floundering. I you know next thing I know. And keep in mind, I've got that that NWA belt, you know, that I've got at the time as well, you know, um, which was a respected thing. And Schumann was my, you know, a father figure to me. And I didn't want to betray him in any way by doing anything disrespectful while I while that belt was associated with me. Because at that time, it was important. You know, now guys, are, everybody's more lax about everything now. But at that time, it was a big deal.
2: Yeah. So... A- oh, sorry.
1: Yeah, no worries so uh i was supposed to be on a show and you know for danny the last show i was supposed to do for him um i found out from somebody who called me who said hey danny's just jobbing you out now and uh you know you're gonna be working with priests and he's just having you do the job and that he's never gonna use you again you know in the pre-show the fucking pre-show you know, and again, my ego at that time could not handle that, you know. Yeah. Um, And that was a, a me problem. That wasn't an anybody else problem.
0: Well, so... Was
1: your big rival there over at AAW then? He mm-hmm. was. He was. That all started with me throwing the biggest fireball in the history of mankind in his face from, like, an entire, you know, from post to post. Like, he was upside down, about to do his move, and I hopped up on the apron from the other side and fucking... Shot a fucking fireball right at him. It that was, was great. Cool. That was me.
0: I've seen I've seen that clip, but I didn't realize. I mean, I knew it was Silas getting it, but oh shit! Okay, I have to track that down. Um, yeah, that was
1: me, man. And what was great was I was on a, a Terry Bam Bam Gordy kick at the time, so I went over to the announce table. I was like, <laughs> now everybody says Silas Young's on fire. Now
0: he is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'll have to I'll have to track that down. Um I've got some additional content ideas. Don't let me forget. Um we'll talk about it off air. So you just you just pop some ideas in my dome over here so
1: yeah, no worries. Yeah. So so basically what happened was, was I no showed that show. I was like, well I'm not doing that. I'm not going to go there and I love Priest. Priest was Eric the underwear model, Eric Priest if you are not familiar familiarize because he he is a guy who should have been signed and made a lot of money in this business and i'm not sure why he did yeah. i'm not sure um but he should have so anyway it would have been no slight to me to putting him over wasn't the problem you know putting him over in the pre-show getting jobbed out and in, in just a couple minutes and then never being used again that would have been a huge problem yeah. so i didn't show up Danny calls me a couple days later. Dupes, where the fuck were you? And I told him, like, Danny, this is what I heard. And I just decided it wasn't good for me to come. He's like, why didn't you call me? You know, like politics. Yeah. And I let politics get in the way. And I, I basically let myself get manipulated. So I told him what was going on. And he goes, why the fuck would you listen to him? He was like, he's a stooge. Like, dude, like, I would have never done that to you. You should have shown up. And now I can't, you know, like if I get you back in the door, it'll be like a year from now. And I did come back for a show or two um, to wrestle Silas again. Um, and those matches were good. Um, There was nothing, you know, they were good. But I think overall Danny and I, my relationship with him was just kind of soured. And um, it didn't help that I asked Jim if he wanted to come get high with me in my car one day. You know, like right before one of my matches. Yeah. Pot got in a lot got me in a lot of trouble too over the years. <laughs> well,
0: Silas is back in AAW right now, so we'll just throw that out there. So just throwing that out through the universe. So
1: Well, Jason Dukes will not be making an appearance in AAW ever, I don't think, because Danny's got too much talent to have some old schmuck like me get in there and um muff muddle his product up. Like he's got a great product and uh he should be super proud of what he's accomplished. I am not bitter. There was a time where I was bitter and I was like, God damn it. You know, I should still be a part of that. But again, my perspective has changed and it's like, no, I I shot myself in the foot. I did things to hurt myself. And, uh, you know, as, as I told you guys earlier, I had to do everything perfect in order to make it because I'm five foot eight, because I didn't have your typical mold as a wrestler you know, for so many different reasons, I had to do things like perfectly. But, you know, as good as I am, and as I was, I just was not good enough to overcome everything I needed to personally overcome in order to make it so. um, And I think to say it any other way is disrespectful for the people that um, did overcome their own personal obstacles, whatever they were, because we all face them. You know, you talk to any of the guys that have made it, they'll all tell you there were point, points in time where they questioned if they were going to. They questioned, you know, if this was for them, you know, if they were really going to make it, you know, and they persevered through that. They were able to overcome overcome those obstacles, whatever they were, you know, and I, I put it like this. If I was that great, You know, my mouth wouldn't have been able to get me in trouble because I'd have been too valuable to the company. Nobody would have wanted to fire me no matter how big my mouth was because I was making them tons of money. That wasn't the case. Right. Um, You know, if so, the reality of why one doesn't make it or does, you know, it's a lot different depending on your perspective. But I think anybody who attempts it seriously and doesn't quite get there just needs to be honest with themselves and say, Hey, you know, I just wasn't good enough. Even if it's an injury, that's the other thing that really pisses me off about sports in general. You you ever come across these guys who are like, "Ah, I'd have been a big time football player if it wasn't for my trick (laughs) knee. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, you know, I had my head, broke my arm when I was a freshman, you know, and my mother wouldn't let me play anymore. Otherwise I'd have been a big football star, a big baseball star. It's always the what if guys, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. And uh, I think that's just, you know, even if you're in a, you know, even if you are really good and that injury got in your way, you know, if you were that great, you know, you'd overcome it. Not everybody's that great that they can overcome a serious injury or they can overcome whatever they need to overcome. That's kind of the point of the whole, that whole rant. Right. You see where I'm coming from?
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm picking up. It
1: just like to say, yeah, it, it's just I. I think it's disrespectful to say I could have made it if. No, nah, you just you didn't make it. You weren't good enough, and it's disrespectful to the people that were good enough to say that you were good enough if only if you know that. That's kind of my position on it.
2: Yeah, am I just well, an asshole? No, well,
1: not. I
0: mean, yes, but not in this instance. See, all right, I do kind of
3: sit on the fence a little bit with your statement because, yeah, you, you didn't you didn't make maybe make it as high as you wanted, but you still made a twenty eight fucking year run out of it. And that's not nothing.
1: No, it's not nothing. But you know, at the end of the day, when you're talking about a quote unquote career, right? You know, I define a career as a almost lifelong way of making money, right? Like, this is your craft. This is your career. Um, I made good money wrestling for a few years. I had I had four really, really good years wrestling. Like, really good years. Mm-hmm. Um, years that most indie guys would die for, honestly.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um But at the end of the day, I didn't make enough money to retire on. I didn't make enough money to um, do nothing but wrestle, right, for the rest of my life. I had, again, I had those four years where that's all that I did. But after those four years, you know, things very much started digressing because I stuck around too long. That's the other thing, too. I, I kept trying to make it a little too long. You know, my the writing was on the wall for me. I was told in plain English, like, dude, you had your chance, you fucked it up, like you're not gonna get another one because you're not that guy, you know? Right. So um, I just you see what I'm saying, you see the point I'm making here. Yeah. All right.
0: Um, real quick, this is kind of a a divergent, but you'll get a kick out of this. So we were talking earlier, you know, what people can do you know, as as wrestlers can do to entertain us, to keep people engaged at AAW last month. um, Something that you probably know pretty well, Mr. Robert Eagle Anthony has not returned to AAW, but uh, uh a person that we know, I will mention off air, uh, was being a little smarty pants and was doing the whole phone thing. And Mr. Anthony stole his phone from right out of his hands and said person lost his shit. It was <laughs> hilarious. And I was walking some <laughs> home. I mean, I was watching on uh, <laughs> pay per view, um. So I just thought you you get a good kick out of the story. I'll I'll give you more details. You know, let me tell I'll...
1: you a, a quick uh, egotistical fantastico story.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So we were we did a show in Milwaukee when we were both living in Illinois at the time, and so we rode together for whatever reason on this particular day we rode together, and uh, he's always been a, a really cool, fun dude. He really has. Um, and his story is interesting all in itself, by the way. Um, so we stop at this Denny's. It was either Denny's or IHOP. I can't remember which. Um, in uh, Deerfield, or not Deerfield, uh, Buffalo Grove, Illinois. And we sit down, and as we're coming in, we see these cute chicks, right? And he's like, and he, I'm married at the time. And he's, like, young and good-looking and, you know, full of – semen that he wants to like unleash on the world so um so we he's like come on dukes you're gonna be my wingman you're gonna go talk to these girls and i'm like dude like i'm married i got kids like i don't need to be your wingman he's like you're gonna be my fucking wingman so like we walk over there he's like hey ladies how's it going and uh i'm robert this is jason how are you guys doing they introduce themselves you know he's like can we sit down they're like sure he's like so uh Where you fancy meeting you here? Like, like essentially just starts probing them a little bit and it got real fucking funny, real fucking fast. So like at one point he asked them like, so what college do you go to? Like they said they were in college. It's like, really? Where do you go? And they, what, I can't remember where they said they went, but wherever they said, he was like, get the fuck out of here. Me too. You're in, you're in for spring break. And they were like, yeah, you know, and he was, they were like, he was like, what dorm do you stay at? And they were like, oh, oh, this storm, whatever whatever it was. He was like, no way, me too. Like, no matter what the fuck they said, he said that he knew what they were talking about. And that motherfucker pulled numbers that night. You know, I don't know if he hooked up with any of them girls later, but he absolutely pulled numbers that night. And I was like, you are fucking smooth. I just, I couldn't believe it. You know, and like everything they would say, he'd be like, basically me too. And <laughs> They bought it, that's hilarious.
0: Yeah, that's somebody I've recently. Um, obviously, I know he ran, the, he uh, was very we big in the freelance academy and everything. Um, and now he's back at AAW, so I know he's got a podcast. I gotta kind of dig into his history. But, um, speaking of AAW alums, and a, a name you mentioned, uh Mr. Tyler Black, uh, now known as, as Seth Rollins, um, obviously, probably one of the top five best wrestlers in the world right now. Um, but I've always said that I, I, I'm a big Seth Rollins fan because he's obviously given back so much to our senior yeah. you know, scene and, you know, us as fans. I mean, his academy. I mean, and he's busting out students out of that academy like crazy. Um, And he's there a lot. Um, Is there anybody else, you know, that you can really think of that's, re- I mean, really kind of reached the pinnacle that high that's given back that much Um, like he has?
1: You know... if you were gonna like really pin me down he's kind of the one you know like i i was never super close to him you know we knew each other we worked with each other a few times um you know for for very a a few various promotions um but i'm always hearing stories about you know, him getting tickets for people and doing favors for people, you know, with special needs and stuff like that. I think he's probably the one. The other one that comes to mind, believe it or not, is Adam Pierce. Um, AP is uh, a Chicago guy, a guy that I came up with back in the day at PWI. Um, He actually started at the school about a year after I did. Um, You know, and from what I understand... I, I don't talk to him very much at all, ever. Maybe just once, you know, a little blip here and there online, um but but not, you know, like I don't have his number or anything like that, although some of us that were really close to him do. I mean, he still talks to people, I know for sure, yeah. um and my understanding is that he does a lot of giving back as well. Um And I'm, I'm sure there are others. I am 100% sure there are others, but um, those two definitely stand out in my mind.
0: Yeah. I mean, Seth, I mean, listen, I just need very turn. Like every black and brave um, student I've ever talked to just, I mean, thinks the world of him.
2: Um, yeah. And,
0: listen, and some people I'm pretty close with. So, um, and I, I, know it's getting late here, Jason. Um, we're definitely going to have to do a part two And probably a part three, because I mean, I've got 16,000 more questions. I'm sure Josh has 16,000 more questions. (laughs) Um, Well, one person I do want to ask about, um, well, while I'm thinking about it is, you know, obviously we do a Ring of Honor retro podcast, you know, back 2013. And a person that's on there a lot right now is Jimmy Jacobs and Steve Carino. Um, I always say Jimmy Jacobs, if there's one person that's a wrestling fucking genius, it's Jimmy Jacobs. Uh, but what are your thoughts on Jimmy Jacobs and or Steve Carino?
1: So um, both of them are just man, ahead of their time in so many ways. And, and Carino was just a throwback and just one of the great minds of, of the era. And even now, you know, like he's just a smart dude. But I have only met Carino in passing a couple times, believe it or not. He's one of those few dudes that just never had a match with him. Yeah, had a match with everybody, it seemed like, but not him. Um, Jimmy Jacobs, on the other hand, uh, I spent plenty of time with, um, worked shows with him. Um, and yeah, I mean, here's a guy who used to come out with this big, huge top hat and his character was kind of party and it was kind of a go nowhere type of deal. Yeah. It's not that it didn't get over, though. He was making that work as best he could right but the idea of what he was doing at that time was kind of you know yeah whatever you know eh, he's got some talent at least that's cool right yeah then when he really found himself um you know it was just all but that was all him that was all him deciding all right i'm gonna ditch this big ass hat and this party persona and i'm gonna do something different and knowing when to do that so that in itself understanding when to stop what you're doing and to do something different that's hard for guys and he did it at a very young age um and he's just he has managed to make a living at pro wrestling you know because more than anything for his brain you know it it's just not you can't even deny it um we wrestled for uh this dude named Chad I can't remember what the name of his short lived promotion was but he booked he booked me and Jimmy as the main event for this show. And uh, it drew like maybe a hundred people, you know, it wasn't a bad draw. It wasn't good. And, you know, like definitely could have been better. Um, And I'll never forget. I was doing the, the, the Rick Rude shtick about, you know, want all you fat out of shape, you know, Milwaukee milk people to keep the noise down and your eyes open while I take my robe off and show you what a really truly sexy person is supposed to look like. You know, but then it's me, you know. Um so I'm doing that shtick at the time and I cut, you know, I think part of what I said was get ready to faint. You know, ladies get ready to hold on to your men, men get ready to hold on to your ladies, because there's gonna be a whole lot of fainting happening. So when I – I think when I took my robe off, you know, the the usual heat, right? Well, me and Jimmy do a little something, and, you know, he gets me out of the ring. Now the the robe is in the ring, and he puts it on, and he grabs the mic. He's like, you know, hold on a minute. I think that everybody needs to keep their mouth shut and their eyes open while I take this robe off. And ladies, gentlemen – catch yourselves because you're going to faint when I take this robe off and show you what a really sexy body is supposed to look like. So I'm back in the ring and he's doing this and we're both in each other's face. So he takes the robe off and I shit you not. Fans are the best sometimes and this is one of those times. The people in the front two rows, they just started one by one for I don't it was almost like the wave but they acted like they passed out.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that's that's good.
1: It goes all the way the fuck around the ring. And when I turn all the way around and I go back and now everybody's passed out, I look up at Jimmy. And this wasn't planned, by the way. I just look up at Jimmy and I went, and I fucking faded backwards. Referee's in the fucking ring already. Jimmy comes and covers me. I let the referee count to three.
3: Yeah,
1: take a loss. The that fucking was- place erupts. You know, they, this is This is what they chanted. This is wrestling. That was the entirety of the fucking match. <laughs> so, Chad, the promoter, paid me. I think that night I got a hundred and a quarter out of him. So God knows what he's paying Jimmy. You know, like Jimmy's like an actual dude, you know, and a really like I was established, but not as well as Jimmy was. He was on, you know, Ring of Honor and everything, and I wasn't. So, uh, I could see when Chad, I mean, he was freaking out. He just got like four minutes out of this fucking, you know, at least it was at least a $250 match. Right. So, uh, you know, Jimmy told the referee to come and tell me two out of three
2: falls.
1: (laughs) So we, we literally, we did, um, we did the first uh, fall where we improv to finish for me to get back even at one, and then you know we did our original plan for him to go over in the third fall, and that's that. So there's another example of where we had yeah. to pivot and go to do something else. But that was one hundred percent fan driven, and that was fucking fun. Yeah,
3: that's, that's a fucking memory. You know what I mean? Like, like no, I it was,
1: it was really cool. Yeah, I'll never forget that as long as I live. Yeah, that
0: that's awesome. Yeah. Um, and I I kind of vulgar, but do you have any more questions? I mean, uh. Your dirty rotten scoundrels? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So
3: like when when I started seeing you, you were you were still performing pretty regularly. Um I, I was doing uh MKE shows at the Knights of Columbus. Remember seeing you. And uh yeah, yeah. Got <clears throat> a good take team run. Uh the doctors, the dirty rotten scoundrels. Um you know, was was just trying just kind of curious about, you know how that because you were you were not working with um Derek Saint uh well, what the hell? Well. De- exactly. Derek St Holmes. you yeah. weren't working with them like leading up to that day. all of a sudden y'all are like this dominant team, win the belts uh having Val strut around and what where did all that come out of well, why did that <laughs> why did that happen
1: so I think that more than anything you know we needed tag teams. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, so my partner, I don't, I don't know if you were, if you went to those last shows at the Knights of Columbus, Mm -hmm. but my partner then was Dave, David soul. Right. And we were the new double D's. Right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so he basically quit wrestling. That's basically what happened. Mm -hmm. Um, did you know that his family owns Solomons? No, no, I didn't. Yeah, his family owns the Solomon's burger chain.
2: Mm, Jesus.
0: Okay. Yeah. Delicious. Those <laughs> fuck those fucking bloody Marys are like when I lived in Idaho, people would ask me about those bloody Marys. They're like, Do you really put a burger in a Bloody Mary? I'm like,
1: Yeah, we're from Wisconsin. Of course we do. Yeah. Sorry, it's all right. That's all right. So uh me and him were tagging and, you know I you know that was going fairly well but you know he was super young and wanted to do all kinds of crazy shit you know and i'm more tempered you know but he he was a he was a good athlete um but he, i think he's one of those guys who really and no offense dave if you watch this but he he's one of those guys who really thought that he was a lot better than what he actually was in the ring um and it's not that he was bad he wasn't bad but you know, he he wasn't on the level that he thought he was. And part of the reasoning to have me and him team together was for me to ground him a little bit and, and teach him and get him to be better than what he was. Right. But that's hard to do when, you know, you're just you're focused on your way and you don't want to hear it, you know, and it's not it wasn't his fault, you know, completely. It was just he was going with the flow. And we actually gelled fairly well as a team, you know, and it, it could have been something, but he quit um, for for valid family reasons. At the, and I think he's helping to run those businesses now, actually. That's so
2: awesome.
1: once he left, that kind of left me without a partner. Mm-hmm. Um, I was kind of in the, in the space of, um, you know, here I am, I'm kind of a baby face and, you know, what do we do? And, You know silas was that was silas's promotion and uh you know one of my one of my you know to this day you know if he needed anything from me i would help him as best as i could because when i was in a real bad way um and returning from the south when i was getting divorced he you know he him and val really helped me out i'll never forget it so um anywho uh you know, he, he was using me and he didn't know what to do. So he, I think it was him that had the idea. Of, what about you and Derek as a tag team? And me and Derek had teamed one other time for a company called uh MAPW in Illinois years ago for uh, uh DDS was the guy that that ran that. uh God, Danny something. I don't all these Dannys run together.
2: <laughs> um, hey, Dannys.
1: So the joke was is that me and Derek were the tag team that back then, and it was like a one-off and I don't remember why I did it, but it was probably just because I love Derek and I just wanted to fuck with him. That's all it was. I just wanted to fuck with him. Well, Derek, if you are familiar with his work, you know, he only has like, I don't know, eight moves. (laughs) So I started the match and proceeded to do all eight of his moves. (laughs) And then tagged him in. He's like, well, what the fuck am I supposed to do? <laughs> so, like he, he would grab the guy by the back of the head and do like the double knees up to the face or whatever. So I did that, you know, like anything that I knew he did, I did before I tagged him in.
2: Awesome.
1: And he's like, you son of a motherless goat. So, uh, you know, so that had been years ago and he forgave me. And we gelled as a very nice tag team, but we will never, ever, uh, we should have never tried the spike pile driver. That's all I'll say about that. Were you there for that?
3: I, w- I was there for the last, I'd say, year and a half. The spike
1: half. pile driver on Kurt, that, uh, the, the mistimed spike pile driver?
3: like i say the last year and a half of mke shows i was at all of them i was very, yeah man that very, was embarrassing very, very disappointed when mke stopped being um and it caused me to have to bridge out and check out other local promotions but uh but yeah i was there for the for the uh the spike pile driver that, I I just thought that was kind of crazy because that was kind of no out of nowhere and like I said, you guys kind of blew up for a little bit. You were you were a big deal there towards end to MKE.
1: Yeah, and no, we were we were a good team. We knew how to get heat. We understood what make. See, that's the thing that people don't understand, man. Like when it comes to tag team wrestling, that's my specialty. You know, I was a really good singles wrestler, great tag teams. Like I, my partners were amazing amazing you know i had frankie defalco as a tag team partner i had the skull crusher rashi brown as a tag team partner um and the list does go on <clears throat> and when you've got two guys like me and Derek who understand the basic psychological principles of what makes a fan tick well now you've got the makings of a good heel team because you know the rules are simple you know if I've got one of the good guys in the ring and the referee is with the other good guy distracted. Well now me and the other bad guy need to both be punching and kicking the living daylights out of the one good guy while the referee isn't looking. And that will get a bigger reaction from you guys than seeing while the referee's back is turned, seeing some elongated spot that ends with a big drop kick or something. You know what I'm saying? Like you will respond harder to me and my partner throwing fists and boots to somebody's face together while the ref's back is turned, then you will that long, complicated spot. It's human nature,
2: oh, it's, like it's this- human
1: nature. You you are programmed, you don't realize you're programmed, but you have, you have been programmed since you were a little kid to perceive what's fair and what's unfair. And anybody will tell you, hey, you've got two guys kicking the shit out of this one dude. I mean, this happens all the time you you're walking down the street you know you you see examples somebody's walking down the street they see a two-on-one situation they try to intervene and say hey what are you doing this isn't fair right um, no and, different in tag team wrestling
3: and then in in your team's instance you also have val who's there distracted the ref well both you guys are kicking the shit out of our guy hmm.
1: like you correct you- and that's also a lost art. There aren't very many managers left anymore because most people don't understand how to use a manager. You know, there are rules. There's gotta be purpose behind it. And I think that's what me and Derek really understood collectively purpose behind everything that we did. No wasted movement, no wasted opportunities to cheat, you know, like nothing. Would you tell me you like seeing it when the referee's back is turned and the, the heels are doing nothing about that you enjoy that does that entertain you it's a wasted opportunity it is a wasted fucking opportunity and you know it's just things like that to get people to just suspend disbelief or not you see what i'm saying so again it all goes back to the job being different and getting you to suspend disbelief and to emotionally commit to the match that i'm in you know that's my goal um and that was me and Derek's goal, you know, specifically as a team. Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, you know, was just an idea of, hey, what happens when you just put two pure heels together? Yeah. Just there, there's no really rhyme or reason behind it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: We're just two dirty rotten fucking dudes. <laughs> you know, we'll both do anything it takes to cool. eat. <laughs> yeah, right.
3: I love the tagline, doctors for short. Um, doctors but, for yeah, short. But 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 yeah, you uh you definitely you parlayed that going forward into your managerial career as well, where where you you definitely play that that heel role to a fucking She's G. You know when your boys are in there fighting, you, you're always still needling at the crowd and making sure that uh that they're staying engaged. So.
1: Yeah, man, and I think. From the manager for that role, that what you just said is so important, keeping the people watching engaged. And what it does, I think the the purpose for the manager is if I can get you to look at me and my reactions and get you to look back at what just happened and question for a second like, oh, shit, you know, like it's just I'm there to add to the atmosphere Wow. I'm there to to get you to help it's one more tool to help to get the fans to um suspend disbelief so um you know for me like you see how animated I am around that ring and that's all Bobby Heenan I mean Bobby he I, and that's primarily where I get my inspiration from when it comes to managerial stuff he lived and died with every move that his his guys were in their making, right? At least he made you believe that. So, I mean, I get comments like, why are you sweating so hard, Dukes? Why are you sweating? Like, you're pouring sweat. Well, I'm, I'm pouring everything I have into the character and pouring everything I have into trying to convince you that I don't know who's going to win and that I'm just cheering for my guy and I'm going to help them do my guys do whatever it takes to win, right? and if i can convey that well enough it's just one more thing to help you suspend your disbelief and enjoy your have a better experience as a fan so that's what i'm there for as a manager is to just help it enhance the fan's experience
0: yeah that's awesome um sorry oh, go good yeah well um yeah this has been this has been awesome i mean this is way more than i ever expected um, thank you so much. We will definitely do this again if you'd like to.
2: Um, yeah, just like, let me know
1: anytime. I, I, so God knows I have no life.
2: <laughs>
0: so, I was
3: telling Tom, though, like, uh, ever since um, day one for me going to these shows, you know, during their missions, we go out and and you know, everybody smoking up front, you from the first time I ever fucking met you, this is how this is how you've been with me since day one like you you're the asshole in the ring or an asshole like uh we need to be during the show step outside and it's like holy fuck he's got a million things to tell you and and just really genuinely good dude
1: so you know yeah thanks man i mean i'm always just humbled that anybody gives a shit about me you know (laughs) that's it's always humbling i don't i don't view myself as anything overly special i feel like i'm a talented dude but you know, um I just i it's always humbling when people tell me, hey, we enjoy what you do and we appreciate you know what you do um so thank you for that i that definitely means a lot to me and thanks for having me on tonight i I definitely appreciate that
0: yeah dude this this is awesome I said I mean it's I mean I, I'm gonna break down the fourth wall I mean, obviously was just is about two hours since we were recording, but I mean, we did go a good hour before we even hit the record button. So just to give the, you know, the high fires and high flyers a little something, but we will definitely do this again. um, But we literally have just scratched the surface. I mean, I've got so many goddamn questions. It's not even funny. So, but thank you so much for your time and we will see you uh, the 27th at the latest. So,
1: Absolutely. We'll see you next week.
0: All right, dude. See you later, bro. All
1: right, guys. Have a great one. This has been. A Visionaries Global
2: Media Production. Visionaries Global Media. Envisioning excellence on a global scale.